0: We are going to talk about the Trinity today. How many of you are excited about that? (laughs) Woo! Uh, Every Memorial Weekend we go down, Marvin has a, a, I don't know, a summer home in Farmington? Who has a summer home in Farmington? Um, But we go down there, Memorial Day weekend, we get together, we swim, we have all kinds of good stuff. Marvin looked at me and he says, hey, what are you uh, preaching about? I said, the Trinity. And he looked at me and he's like, are you stupid? <laughs> Who in their right mind wants to preach on the Trinity? Because it's the most confusing doctrine of the Christian church. Uh, when Terry asked me to come fill in it in June, for the entire month of June, I got excited. They initially asked me to uh, talk about the Old Testament and prophets in the Old Testament. I think they wanted to call it something cute like majoring on the minors because baseball season was starting or something like that, right? That was a good idea. I said, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> not because, well, yes, because I'm a rebel to the end, right? Ah, power of the people. Um, no, I've been reading about the Trinity and trying to lean into the idea of the Trinity for a long time now. Because as Marvin said, we Protestants are terrible with the Trinity. Be honest with me. When you think of God, what do you think of? Shout it out. God. What else? Some people may lean more into the Father, God is Father. Um, when you pray, you might say Father God. Um, you might end your prayers with in Jesus' name. So sometimes we think of Jesus. Protestants rarely, rarely, rarely think about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is like the redheaded stepchild of the Trinity. Right? Very rarely do we we talk about the Holy Spirit. Particularly mainline Protestants, the Holy Spirit kind of scares us. We don't know what to do with the Holy Spirit. And so we don't think of God, from from a, a Christian perspective, we don't think of God in a Trinitarian form. We think of God as God. And yet... Our basis of Western thought and Western history and philosophical understanding of the individual is born out of the theology of the Trinity. It is a foundational aspect of who we are as a culture, not only as a church, but as a culture, and we don't understand it, and we're still trying to wrap our heads around it. So I like to take on challenges, right? Um, I like to wrestle with things, so here's the problem. One plus one plus one equals, anybody? One, that's weird. All right, here's a um, fascination of mine. I love to pay attention to, to what's happening on college campuses. Anybody else? It's really exciting stuff that's going on in college campuses these days. We see probably one of the most rocky times on college campuses ever seen in our history in the United States. And there's a couple of reasons for that. And here's one of the reasons why I, I watch college campuses. The reason I watch college campuses is because inevitably what's taught at the college, collegiate level trickles down into our culture about 15 to 20 years later. You with me? So, what happens? Pe- kids go off to college, they learn things, and then they come out into the workforce, and then that generation takes over, and then their ideological thought kind of trickles out into the culture. So if you pay attention to what's happening on college campuses and the ideology that's happening on college campuses, it will give you an indicator not only of what's happening in current culture, but what's going to happen in the next 15 to 20 years. There is more divisiveness on college campuses now than maybe we've ever seen in our history. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I tend to find myself squarely in the center. So the United Methodist Church is going through something right now. Anybody aware of that? Hmm. Um, I find myself, as a pastor in the United Methodist Church, doing my best to to hold hands on both sides. And and it can be kind of painful, (laughs) because it seems that those sides are getting further and further apart. In fact, historically speaking, from a political standpoint, we are as far apart as we've ever been since the Civil War. So there's two major things happening on college campuses these days, and I get this information from Jonathan Haidt, spelled H-A-I-D-T if you want to look him up later. He's a a professor at the um, University of New York business. His background is psychology, so he's a social scientist. So he's constantly trying to assess culture and how it's going and where it's going and why it's doing what it's doing. And there's two things that he points out specifically that have caused this problem in the university space, and really, I think it reflects the problem that we have in our current culture. The first one is this. The first one is the generation that is going to college right now has never been more depressed and anxious as, as, as physical diagnoses than any other generation. Now what you might be tempted to say is, well maybe life is more stressful than it has been. Nope. They don't report any higher stress than you and I go through. They report the highest of anxiety, and the highest of depression, specifically in females. We've seen a rise in um, female attempted suicide. In 2015, we hit a peak in the U.S. It was up 40%. So what's going on? The other thing that Jonathan Haidt points out is this. There is a political divide. More than we've ever seen before, I I just mentioned that. If you YouTube, YouTube is a website, for those of you who don't know, go on YouTube. You can look up um, political divisiveness. A video should pop up, it's about 60 seconds long. And what it does is it gives you a visual of Congress from 1954 to today. The blue dots are Democrats, the red dots are Republicans. It, it, It gives a dot per position, whether it's in the House or the Senate, and then it draws a little line as to who those individuals worked with. Now, it's not surprising, primarily Democrats work with Democrats, and primarily Republicans work with Republicans, right? You with me? Okay. However, in the 1950s, and I think this had to do with some of the major wars that were going on, you saw a lot of work being done across party lines. You just, this is what you saw. And so what this video does is it shows you, goes through those different, different congressional. So it starts about like this, because you see a lot of work being done. And then as time goes, you know, the Republicans take the House and the Senate, and then the Democrats take the House and the Senate, and then, and then all of a sudden, in, in a, here's about where we are. And you see very, very little across party lines stuff happening. So it's not surprising that we can't get anything done. And oh, by the way, in the church, you know, I mentioned, I don't know if you know the little things going on in the United Methodism. Guess what United Methodism was born out of? We were born quite literally when the United States was born. So it's not surprising to me that we see the same, the exact same divide within our church that we see at the Congress level. So, setting the stage. It's not surprising to me. Every generation believes that the next generation coming up is just going to screw everything up. Think about it. Those of you who are part of the greatest generation, you believe these boomers? They are hippies out in the fields, and they're just like floating around, and these are the people that are going to be running this country? And if you're a boomer, You're pointing at me like a Gen Xer slash millennial and you're like, all he's listening to is this heavy music and he can't get his life together and how in the world is he going to run the country? And then us millennials are looking at Gen Z going like, they don't even know what it's like to live without a cell phone. When was the first time you bought a cell phone? For some of you. In your 40s? Some of you? 50s? 50s? Okay. I got a cell phone when I was 22 years old and I had just gotten married. So I was out of college, got a cell phone. Uh, Those who just graduated college, it's like the tail end of the millennials. Uh, Those of you, when did you get a cell phone? Ninth grade. Okay. Now when are people getting cell phones? Fifth grade. About the average. Their own individual personal cell phone. That doesn't count iPads that are, you know, being shoved in kids' faces um, from age two and three on. I keep pulling mine out of my daughter's hand because she goes over and and grabs it. There is, and we've never seen a time in our country, in, in history, really, we've never seen a time where there's a generational divide as much as we've seen now because of technology. I mean, technology has quite literally changed everything and we are just now beginning to cobble together some of the, the effects that technology is having in our world okay we're about 10 years out anybody know when facebook started anybody earlier surprising right 2001 Okay. Facebook started in 2001. Do you know the, the generation that's getting on Facebook now more than any other generation? Boomers. Boomers are using Facebook more than anybody right now. So we, quite, we do see this, this generational divide that is, that is causing stress and causing tension in our society. Okay, let me give you one example of this, or two examples. I'll give you two examples. Those of you who were in the greatest generation or the boomers, at what age were you allowed to go outside of your house and play by yourself in the neighborhood? Just shout it out to me. Four, five, six. Six is about the average, okay? Okay. Six years old. Uh, you know, some parents thought preschool, that's maybe a little young. Four, I heard four in the last service too. And I just assumed, you know, maybe you were an early walker. Maybe you walked at like five months. You were just a little, you know, like out there. Um, s- six years old. That's about the average that you were let out of the house. That's about, that's about the average that I was let out as well, just in case you're wondering. I was born in 1981. Okay? Six years old. Um, Gen Z which is the generation that's now entering into college. Anybody know the average that they're allowed out of the house by themselves uh, to do their thing? Twelve. Think about that. Six years difference. Twelve years old. Let me give you another example. When I was growing up, getting your driver's license was priority number one. When you turn 16 years old, and if your birthday was on a Friday, you were devastated because you had to wait till when to get your driver's license? Monday! And can you imagine that if it was Memorial Day weekend and Monday the office was closed and you had to wait till Tuesday? Ah! You got your driver's license as quick as you possibly could. Why? Independence, baby! That way you could go do what you wanted to do on Friday night. You could go stroll the streets. You could, you know, lean back that seat a little bit, bump that music, do your thing. Do you know how many kids who are 18 years old who are going off to college without a driver's license these days? more than ever before. Why? Where's their world? Right here. They are more connected than any generation has ever been before in this world. More connected. And so their world is right here. Individual independence for them is not a priority. They are far more concerned about the social collective than the individual. You with me? So here we have, we are in the most politically divided time in our our country's history, except after the Civil War. It's about the same as after the Civil War, which is interesting. And we have generations that are trying, as best they can, to have a conversation with one another, to move the conversation forward, and yet we're starting from completely different baseline ideologies. You beginning to see the problem that we have here in America? One generation focuses almost exclusively on the collective. Another generation focuses almost exclusively on the individual. And so when you try to have a conversation, you end up going, and you just start talking past one another. So what do we do about this? There's another group of people who who make social commentary that I love in America. Comedians. Now, comedians play a very important role in our culture. And comedians have always played a very important role in culture. I mean, you can go back to the court jester. The only one that could make fun of the king or the queen was the jester. And the jester has this role of pointing out to us, pointing out things in a way that we can laugh, yet makes us go, hmm. Right? One of my favorite comedians of all time is Dave Chappelle. Love Dave Chappelle. Now, Uh, Yes, Dave Chappelle is from Ohio. Yes, I am from Ohio. It's primarily where God's people are born. (laughs) But that's not the only reason why I love Dave Chappelle. Okay? Dave Chappelle, about two years ago, came out with four different Netflix specials. Anybody seen them? Okay, if you have Netflix, I encourage you to go watch them. Uh, This is not where I can condone you watching them with your children. Don't do that. Okay? Well, you guys need to be a little more lively this afternoon. (laughs) You guys are just a little little dead here. Come on. All right. Um, Dave Chappelle talks a lot about quite a few controversial things. And he got some pushback on some of these controversial things that he talked about. And he was being interviewed afterwards. And the interviewer asked him, he said, are you surprised that people are pushing back? He said, no. There's a lot of things to be angry about right now right? And not only that, we know more than we've ever known before. Because you get a a beep on your phone, you get a push notification of something that happened in the United States that 25 years ago you never would have known about it unless maybe it hit the national news, right? So we know more than we've ever known before, and there's a lot more things to be angry. And so finding these lines, I mean, there's landmines all over the place that can be stepped on. Trust me, I know I'm standing in front of a group of people having a conversation about controversial topics. There are landmines that can be stepped on all over the place. But Dave Chappelle came back with what I thought was some beautiful wisdom. And he got a little Christian on us. And he said, look, we're all trying to figure out where those lines are. We've never been in this time in history. We would do really, really well in any conversation that we're having with anyone to give as much grace as we possibly can. And the other key here is to assume the best, not the worst. Because if we go in giving grace and assuming the best, then we've got a shot at actually having a conversation. All right, so that sets the stage. That's the problem. The problem, just to outline it, is twofold. It's the wrestling with the one and the many. And the problem is, how do we wrap our heads around this idealism, this idea of individualism and the importance of individualism, and this idea of collectivism and the importance of collectivism? How do we as Christians, in today's world, in today's culture, how do we pull those together to form a way forward, basically? Now, the Christian church historically has gone one of two directions either gone hyper-individualism or hyper-collectivism, okay? Let me give you an example of why both are extremely important. The foundation of Western philosophy is primarily born on individualism. Wouldn't you say? Make sense of that? Um, Anybody heard of uh, Richard or Frederick Douglass? Excuse me. Frederick Douglass. Anybody? Anybody? Frederick Douglass? Yeah, anybody? Good, good. Good. Frederick Douglass was an amazing individual. And individualism is really, really layered on with a noun. It's the self, right? Frederick Douglass, when he ran away from from his slave masters, he went to the north, he did something just crazy. He wrote him a letter. He wrote his slave master a letter back and said, this is why I left and this is why it's okay for me to leave. And here's what he said. I am myself. You are yourself. We are two distinct persons, equal persons. What you are, I am. You are a man and so am I. God created both and made us separate beings. I am not by nature bound to you or you to me. Nature does not make your existence depend on me or mine to depend on yours. You can see the importance here, right? The individual. We are bound to a certain extent, but I can't force you to do something, and you can't force me to do something in return. The other line that Christianity has gone is hyper-collectivism. And here we see more of a verb-driven. I find more in relationships. So this is from Father Richard Rohr who is a Catholic priest um, from the book The Divine Dance. He says this, God as Trinity gives hope to society as a whole because it is based on the very nature of existence itself and not on the up and down behaviors of individuals which are always unstable. And we can see truth in that as well. The collectivism always pushes the benefit of the collective society in front of the individual, and the individualism always pushes the benefit of the individual in front of the collective society. So, okay, what do we do with all this? Let's talk about the Trinity. St. Augustine, one of the great fathers of the Christian Church, wrote about a 600-page book called De Trinitate on the Trinity. And by the end of the book, spoiler alert, His conclusion was, it's a mystery. We're never going to understand it. It Took him 600 pages to get there. So what do we do? Because we are finite beings. We're talking about an infinite God, a transcendent God that's outside of our space-time. How in the world are we to understand this? The best that we can do is an analogy. The problem with analogies is inevitably they break down. Inevitably, they fall apart. So we've tried throughout history to come up with the analogies of how we explain the Trinity, and they end up falling flat on their face. So here's what I want you to do. I do not want you to think that you are going to understand the mechanics of the Trinity. I promise you, if Augustine couldn't figure it out, no offense, neither can you. (laughs) Here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at the Trinity as art. Because here's what art does to you. If you find a good piece of art, what does it force you to do? Use your imagination. It forces you to be introspective. It, it, it pulls some things that out of you. It gives you an emotional response. So if you can begin to look at the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, as, as beautiful art, it will inevitably shape you towards good. All right, so I'm going to give you an analogy and know that it's going to fall wo- woefully short. Okay, but hopefully this will be a little bit helpful. All right, so here's a, what I think is the best analogy that we can come up with inside of our uh, sphere. All right, so you got the Father, Son, or Jesus. If you were in the South, you'd say jesus You always give an extra syllable to it. And Holy Spirit. Okay, you with me? Three distinct persons. right? When Augustine was wrestling with the Trinity, he said they are personae, which is Latin, persons. You are a person. You are distinct. You are separate from those that are sitting around you. But here's the key. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. Anybody's mind blown yet? Okay? We're almost there. All right. But here's the truth. The Father, when you look at the Father, you see a complete and full picture. Of God, so the Father is God. When you look at the Son, the life, the death, the resurrection, the works, the, the the healings, the teachings. When you look at the picture of Jesus, you see a full and complete picture of God. When you look at the Holy Spirit, particularly the power of the Holy Spirit to be um, get inside of you and to spur you on good works and Christianity and social justice and all of these things. When you see the Holy Spirit, you see a full picture of who God is. But the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. But they are all God. In the Trinity, the problem 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 1. I think we find the solution our social issues built into the trinity itself our our catholic little c understanding who god is as we see this beautiful individualism we see this beautiful distinctive in putting value in the individual but we also see this beautiful collectivism that all three the father the son and the holy ghost are collectively who god is all right I'll give you two examples uh, that I've found within Christianity that I believe are doing their absolute best to pull these two concepts together and actual impact in the world. Because who cares if we talk about all of this from a heady intellectual perspective if we're not actually doing things in the world to make a difference, right? Who cares? One is this. The Catholic Worker Movement. Anybody familiar with the Catholic Worker Movement? Okay, Dorothy Day, Peter Morin, 1920s, 1930s, Catholic Worker Movement starts. Peter Morin was a French philosopher who came to the United States. He had had this French idealism of, of personal responsibility. You have personal, individual responsibility. Dorothy Day was a beautiful soul who saw the person on the street side had no home, who had no family, who had nothing to eat, and she said, you know what? The Catholic Church teaches me that the works of mercy is the way to salvation, and that's what I'm going to do, works of mercy. I'm going to feed this person. I'm going to clothe them, and Peter Morin and and Dorothy Day got together, and and their relationship formed this beautiful picture of Christianity that Personal ideals, the individual is spawned to care for the collective. See how that works? In the midst of the Trinity, we see the individualism moving towards the collective good. The other example that I found, I'll give to you, is this. In South Africa, right after apartheid, you had Desmond Tutu. You're probably familiar with that name. Um, he, Anglican priest. Uh, and then you had Nelson Mandela. It was the work of Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela coming together after the apartheid. And they created a, a, an approach to justice that was restorative justice, not retributive justice. Okay? And built in the foundation of that approach to justice was a little African word that they kind of co-opted with Christian theology called Ubuntu. Anybody heard of this word? Ubuntu, and translated, it literally means, I am because we are. Think about that. I am. I exist. I am an individual. I am separate from you. I hold value that is equal to your own and the importance of that. But I am only because we are. And so here we find another Christian tradition that is desperately trying to hold the reins between this massive individualism that's pulling us in one direction and this idea of collectivism that's pulling us in this other direction. And we're desperately trying to pull the two together. So what does that mean for you? Here's what it means for you. If you find yourself in a tough conversation, and let's be honest, most of us just avoid them, Um, because there's so many landmines out there right now, and and you don't know where the other person stands, and you don't want to offend them, and you don't want to step on it and all this other stuff. But I'm going to encourage you not to avoid it. I'm going to encourage you to lean into it, okay? Because it's important. But here's what this idea of pulling these two things together with the Trinity will do. It will force you to look at the other person and to take account and say, you know what, I've got some things to say that are very important, but I need to listen first to what this other person is saying to understand their perspective, to see where they're coming from first, so that we then can enter into a dialogue, okay? That's where I think the pooling of these two things together. So here's what I want you to do. I I started this off with the question of when you think of God, what do you think of? And most of us, if we're being honest with ourselves, we think of one aspect of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, whichever it is, we think of one. Here's what I would encourage you to do, and it's going to seem really, really simple. And you're going to be like, really? I, I sat through all of this for this? When you pray, I want you to end your personal prayers by ending it simply saying, In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, or Holy Spirit, whichever one you're most comfortable with. That's your takeaway today. That's why I get paid the big bucks. (laughs) I want you to end your personal prayer in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And for some of you, it's going to feel weird at first, and For some of you, you're going to be like, why am I doing this? But I promise you, when you start to refer to God in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, it will force you inside to view this beautiful, holy, mystery, artistic thing. (laughs) And it will start to change you that God is individual, yet God is one. And how can I, as an individual, make a collective difference in this world? And it will begin to form you, and it will begin to shape you. And if we all do that, if we all begin to pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we might not see this as a problem anymore. But rather, we might see it as the solution that it is. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.